Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Jesus was in Jerusalem, in the temple, and some of the Pharisees and Herodians approached him. Pharisee was neither an office nor an occupation. A Pharisee was part of a movement, a 200-year-old movement that stood on the law. A Pharisee desired to live life according to God's law, to live every aspect of their life according to God's law to live a righteous life, a holy life. Well, at the time of Jesus, about 1% of the population belonged to this group, but their influence far outweighed their numbers. The Herodians were named after Herod. Herod, the great king, when Jesus was born. They were sympathizers. They were supporters of Herod and his dynasty, his children. This alliance between the Pharisees and Herodians was unusual. Typically, they would not be allied on any issue. Herodians embraced Roman rule. They embraced Greco-Roman culture, while the Pharisees rejected both. But what brought them together as allies was a common enemy, Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus, threatened by his popularity, threatened by his teaching. The Pharisees and Herodians were sent to Jesus. They were sent by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a 71-member council made up of chief priests and elders and scribes. It served as the religious authority for God's people. It served as a buffer between God's people and the ruling Roman authorities. Those who served on the Sanhedrin were the movers and the shakers in Jerusalem. They had already confronted Jesus over the source of his authority. Now they sent Herodians and Pharisees, some of whom were members of the Sanhedrin. They were sent to trap Jesus. They were sent to catch Jesus, to snare him with the political question, a very hot button political question, taxes. After flattering Jesus, they asked him this question in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? In other words, should God's people occupied Israel pay taxes to Rome, the occupier? Now, this question referred to a specific tax, the poll tax. Imposed by Rome around the year six, the poll tax was an annual individual income tax. All Roman taxes were unpopular, but this one in particular was hated. In fact, when Rome put this tax in place, it caused an uprising. It caused a revolt led by a man named Judas of Galilee. Rome quickly stamped out this insurrection with its military machine, but the uprising remained an inspiration for generations, especially for the emerging zealot movement. 
Zealots were Jews who wanted to overthrow Rome, to overthrow Rome by any means necessary. Well, payment for this poll tax was a denarius. The denarius was a silver Roman coin that roughly amounted to a day's wage. On one side of the denarius was the image of Tiberius Caesar, emperor of Rome. Underneath his image was the inscription, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin was the image of Livia, the emperor's mother, and underneath it was the inscription, High Priest. This coin, which circulated all over the Roman Empire, proclaimed the emperor to be a son of a god. And as son, he was also divine and priest above all priests. Well, here was the trap that they laid for Jesus. If Jesus said, yes, yes, they should pay taxes to Caesar, he would appear to support Rome. And word would spread that Jesus was pro-Rome, which would then discredit him among most Jews. For the religious leaders, this meant that he would lose his following. If Jesus said, no, no, they should not pay taxes to Caesar, they should refuse, he would then appear to be a rebel, an insurrectionist a zealot, just like Judas of Galilee. Well, for the religious leaders, this meant that they could warn Rome of a potential threat and let them take care of Jesus. But Jesus knew their intent. Jesus recognized the trap and he answers neither yes nor no. He responds neither yes nor no, but his masterful reply both undermines their intent and the very basis of their question. Jesus tells his questioners to bring him a denarius, He doesn't have one. He's not carrying the silver coin, but they produce one. At least one of them carried the imperial money, which except for paying the tax, most Jews did not. And here's why. First, it came from Rome. Second, the emperor's claim of divinity was blasphemous for Jews. No man could claim the title of God. No man could claim the authority of God. Therefore, the coin was considered an idol, a graven image, a violation of the second commandment. So most Jews used copper coins. They were minted locally. They had no image on them. But these religious leaders had no problem carrying this coin. Holding up the coin, the Son of God asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They answer, Caesar's. Well, Jesus replies, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. The coin has Caesar's image on it. It belongs to him. Give it to him. Jesus is no anarchist. He acknowledges that human governments have a role, that governments have a claim, including taxes. God's people have duties to government, to the political authority that is over them, placed over them by a sovereign God. But Jesus also shows that the claim of government is not ultimate. The claim is not total. The coin bears the image of Caesar. It belongs to him. 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Well, what bears the image of God? You do. You bear the image of God. God created male and female in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Nothing else in all creation bears this image. It is unique to men and women. Every person that lives, every person that is born, bears the image of God. Render to God the things that are God's. Well, that's you. Your life. And all that you are, that's your past, your present, your future, your gifts, your talents, your time. You are His. He has ultimate claim. He has ultimate authority over your life. Have you given it to him? Have you offered it to him, your life? Do you live as if you belong to him? Well, in his answer, Jesus, Jesus shows that the two can exist together. They don't have to be opposed. The claims of the two in your life can exist together. You can maintain loyalty to both. Well, problems arise when the claims of the state, the claims of government, come into conflict with the claims of God, which has happened in various places down through history. And if that ever happens to you, and it must be a clear conflict with God's claims, then you must be faithful to your Lord, faithful to your Savior, faithful to the one who died for you, to the one who gives you life, faithful to the one whose image you bear. Well, immediately after this confrontation, Sadducees came to Jesus. They came to question him. Along with the Pharisees, Sadducees dominated Jewish life. Like Pharisees, Sadducee was neither an office nor an occupation. It was a 200-year-old movement. Sadducees were typically from the wealthy, upper social classes of Jerusalem. And they differ greatly in their beliefs from the Pharisees. They only recognized the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, as their authority. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, that after death, God would raise the dead in body. In fact, they didn't believe in an afterlife at all. These Sadducees approached Jesus with a theological question, a question about the resurrection of the dead. And their purpose was twofold, to discredit the belief and to discredit Jesus. Well, the question that they posed to Jesus centers around marriage. In their question, the Sadducees referred to God's law. This law was our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy. It was a law concerning leverate marriage. In it, a man was obligated to marry the childless widow of his brother. In other words, if a man's brother married and his brother died and his brother had no children, that man would be required to marry his brother's widow. Now, this law sounds strange in our modern ears. However, there were two reasons for this law. First, to preserve the name of the deceased brother. 
and the second to ensure that his property remained in his family line. Well, the Sadducees asked Jesus a question based on this law, gave him a scenario based on this law. There were seven brothers. The oldest brother took a wife. And when he died, he was childless. Well, the second brother took his brother's widow as his wife. He died, he died childless. The third brother took her as his wife. He died childless and on and on. All seven brothers died they left no children. And finally, the woman died. Well, here's the question that the, that the Sadducees asked Jesus in verse 23. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, for the Sadducees, their question was to show that belief in the resurrection was ridiculous, absurd, nonsensical. If, if people were actually raised from the dead, there would be all kinds of problems. Now, maybe the problems would not be as complicated as the one they posed, but it certainly makes the point. Now, their intent was that Jesus would either have to agree with them that the resurrection of the dead is absurd or be forced to make a complicated, highly technical argument about whose husband the woman would be, which would then prove their point. But Jesus does neither. He tells them that they are wrong. In error. The Greek word here literally means wander off track. He tells them you've wandered off track. And here's why they've wandered off track. Listen to verse 24 again. You know neither the scriptures or the power of God. Ouch. This is what these religious leaders are supposed to know the most. This is what they claim to know the most, the scriptures and the power of God. And this is exactly how you can wander off track. Know the scriptures. Read them. Study them. Wrestle with them. Live them. Hear them in worship, listen to them in a Bible study, in Sunday school. Through them, you will know the power of God. It's the same power that cleanses you of sin, the same power that conquered death through the Son, through Jesus. Jesus died, and he rose from the dead, resurrected. He is the first, and the promise for you is to follow him, follow him through death, follow him into resurrected life. This is the power of love, divine love, selfless, sacrificial love, the love of Jesus Christ for you. Well, in his answer, Jesus affirms the resurrection. There will be a resurrection of the dead, but it will be a new state, a new dimension, like the angels, not as the angels. You don't become an angel but like angels. It will be like present life, but different. You will have a body. You will know others, but it will be different, better. In fact, it will be more glorious than you can imagine, more wonderful than you can imagine. Think of the best experience you've ever had, the best moment that you've ever had in your life. And resurrected life will be a million times better, a million times greater. 
And even that doesn't begin to grasp the joy and love and the peace that the Father has in store for you. Well, Jesus says that one of the differences between life now and resurrected life is that there is, there is no marriage. The relationship does not exist in resurrected life. Therefore, in answer to the Sadducees, the woman will not be married to any of the seven brothers. Now, if you are married and your spouse is a follower of Jesus, will you see them? Will you know them in the resurrection? Well, the answer is yes, but your relationship will be different. It will be better, more glorious. That is the power of God. And Jesus says it's based on scripture. He quotes one of the books of Moses, one of the books the Sadducees acknowledge as authoritative, Exodus. In Exodus chapter three, God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Quoting this, Jesus then speaks these words in verse 27 of our Mark passage. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Death is not the end. Otherwise, God would not have claimed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Moses. He would not have identified with the dead. He would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they are alive. His relationship with them is eternal, unbroken, for the promise to conquer death is for them. The promise of resurrection is for them and for you. Made in his image, you belong to him. And this existence, this present life, is not all that there is. There is more, more life to come. Eternal life. Resurrected life. Life that you are being prepared for. Here and now. A life of eternal joy. A life of eternal peace. Experiencing the love of God in his presence forever. That is our hope in Jesus Christ. And it's not an escape. It's true hope, hope based on the promises of God in Jesus. And as you face struggles in life, burdens, trials, temptations, sorrow, embrace this hope. Hold on to this hope that there is more, an eternity more, with the one to whom you belong, Jesus Christ, to whom be all honor and glory. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 